Hey there, and welcome to Media, the podcast where we talk about VCU media and media education in general. My name is Brett Lamb, and we've got a very special reality TV episode uh, here today. And I'm joined by some fantastic special guests. I'm joined by my Year 11 class, who are really awesome, and they're all here. And we're joined by uh, someone who can only be described as a reality TV aficionado and also an Australian Survivor contestant, Evan Jones. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Jones. Uh, Brett, thanks for having us. Yeah, no worries. Um, I'm keen to talk about this idea of representation and reality TV. So I'd like to find out more about um, how representation works in reality TV, how the different uh, people are represented on reality TV, and to hear about your experiences um, as well. And to start off with... I want to talk about the history of reality TV because it's not something that's terrifically new. It's been around for a while. And in fact, in my research for this show, I discovered that one of the earliest examples of reality TV was Candid Camera, which was this American show. It started in 1948. So this idea of real or reality TV stretches right back to the early days of um, TV. There was a show in the 90s, I think it was called Airport, which was a British show which focused on uh, people working in an airport and the things that they encountered in their job. And I think really the first competition reality show was probably Big Brother, Mm. um, which... Uh, was basically a whole bunch of people trapped in a house. It was kind of like a social experiment and they were filmed all of the time. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'm keen to hear from you, Mr. Jones. Actually, we've got, we've got Gabriel here. Gabriel, you've got like the first question for Mr. Jones. How real is reality TV? Mm, what's your definition of real? Um, I guess the truth. Oh, that's a dangerous little path we go down, the truth. I suppose it's like when you read a newspaper, you've got to be very careful with the word truth uh, because people that put on a a text to an audience have a responsibility. And that responsibility is depending on their angle, whether it's entertainment or whether it's information, is to put something across that's, that's accurate. Often in entertainment, it gets the lines get a little bit blurred. So... In terms of reality TV, if we're looking at, say, like a, a MasterChef, a cooking show, yes, they are real people. They do have real lives. But then when they enter into that environment, it's a surreal environment in itself. It's quite unreal when you think about it. It's a group of people being filmed to tell a narrative, to explore a story. So there is an element of realness to it. Absolutely, that the people are real. Their emotions are real but how it can be constructed, edited and filmed could change the look at that reality. Um, Being a long-time fan of Survivor, what do you think the audience gets out of the show? I'll probably just talk from sort of my experience and and those of fans that I know that absolutely love it. And personally, myself, what I get out of it is just a social experiment and seeing how people react in different situations. And for me, personally, I find Survivor is probably the closest reality show to exploring the human condition and how we interact with people. It also explores things like gender, it explores race, it explores cultural identity, and in a probably more holistic fashion, who people are as a person. So I would believe that for me, why I got into it was I, I like watching people, like we all do. We like seeing a, an argument in the street. We like watching somebody else's conversation to hear what's going on. And for me, I think it's a very, very powerful show in the sense that 
you could sit down with your family and, and young children and actually talk about morals and what's right and wrong and not necessarily have to worry about them seeing something that's too far removed from reality. That's a really interesting response. Now, for homework, everyone in this room, I think, has watched the first three episodes of Australian Survivor that you were involved in. In fact, Kieran, sitting over to my right here, not only watched the first three, but he binged 10 episodes uh, in the last week, which I think is a pretty impressive effort. Uh, The thing is, I have never really watched a whole lot of reality TV, and I watched Survivor because you were in it. And I was struck by how addictive it was mm. um, because I I found it real. At the end of the first, first third episode, sorry, spoilers here, yep. Mr. Jones, Evan Jones gets voted off the island um, and he's gone. And I actually found it really difficult to stop at that point. I thought mm. I'm done here, but I'm kind of, I kind of want to know what happens to these other people. So I found that the way the the show tells a story and the way that story engages, I found really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you say that because even myself, like there's a part of you where you, you're huddled up in a fetal position crying because you want to be still out there. But when you're watching it, you want to see people that you connected with and you respected out there. You want to see their journey. And as a you know, media teacher myself and someone that's quite into storytelling, you want to see how they do it. And knowing when it was getting to a certain stage about who might potentially win, you know, because there's always a lot of secrecy, but you've got your sort of ideas about who might win. I found it fascinating to see how they constructed a story out of something that might not have been there as well. Like, how did they actually tell that tale to follow that winner? And if that winner didn't win, it would have been a completely different edit, a completely different narrative. One of the things that I find fascinating about reality TV, I think a lot of people talk trash talk reality TV. They say it's a bad thing. It's a kind of voyeuristic uh, that, you know, uh, they talk it down. And I think... In the last decade or so, one of the interesting things about reality TV is it saved broadcast television because we've moved into this era. First of all, it was DVD box sets. You might remember those things called DVDs, but people started buying television and binging it in one hit. And now we have Netflix and streaming services like that. And so people aren't necessarily watching broadcast television except for events like Survivor which are broadcast live, you know, so there isn't that time shift. So I think uh, reality TV in the last decade or so has really helped to save um, broadcast television and to keep it viable. Mm. And if you look at the the heated competition for ratings at the moment, so if you look at Channel 9, Channel 9's done quite well with uh, Married at First Sight at the moment. Their first effort at that didn't really work and then they refined it and thought what would people like and they've gone back to personalities more about getting these conflicting personalities to create conflict that we all like to see. And then from there, they're sort of spearheading some more relationship ones. There's, a, there's ones coming out that's like sort of a half survivor, half marriage counselling sort of approach they're doing. And Channel 9 have figured out, well, okay, we can't do cooking. They've tried cooking and it's been a disaster. Channel 10 have done it very well. My Kitchen Rules on Channel 7 has been pretty strong. So they've gone, well, we'll do relationships Right. And if you think of Channel 9 also are very successful with the block. They've nailed that. So they've got a certain demographic that they tailor their reality to. And, yeah, Brett, you're right because you've got to think about it. It's just uh, launched again. I'm intrigued by this marriage counselling um, <laughs> meets survivor. What do you give people who are having marital difficulties spears? Well, I don't know if there's the spears. Okay. But the, how it's been sold to me on my TV screen is that they're going out to this sort of deserted sort of resort location and they're just airing all their grievances. 
Wow. Mm. Okay. That actually that sounds addictive. Uh, we've got Ross here uh, now. Ross has another question for you. What did you have to do to get onto the show? Oh wow, that is a loaded question. I, I will break that down for you. So there's an audition process, and the first audition process that you have to do, Ross, is that you have to do an audition video, and it was a quite humbling and challenging experience for me because they said we want you to show your entire personality and aspects of your life in under three minutes and I thought geez that's difficult and it's my advice from a past survivor winner um, Tony Vlachos was his name he won, he won season 28 uh, of American um, Survivor and he said be yourself so don't be anything else because the people that are trying to cast you want real people. They don't want actors. They don't want fakes. They want a real person. So I had to open myself up with that video, which uh, Mr. Lamb actually helped me with and made the production values look sensational. I should say, though, we, we ran around uh, in the bush uh, yep. for about three hours filming Mr. Jones' audition video. And then afterwards, he was like, here are some audition videos on YouTube. <laughs> and he showed me one from America yep, with this guy with a flaming torch running. And there were these drone shots. And I was, you should have shown me this beforehand. <laughs> Although I think it was a total fire ban on that day. So yeah, it was probably very, got very, very warm day. Torch. But um, yeah, so from that, Ross, what happened was I then I had to fill in some information about myself, be very open. I then got called back. I had to do a Skype call uh, with someone. I was in Houston at the time seeing some family, so that was quite surreal. And then I got called back again for another conversation for an hour. I then got called to a group situation where they wanted to see how we interacted with other people. I then got called back to see the producers. I then had to do physicals, medicals. I then had to talk to a psychologist. And then I think eventually I, <laughs> I got a call to say you're on. Okay, wow. Uh, my question is, how much can you tell us? Because I'm sure when you mm. go on a show like this, you might sign non-disclosure yeah. agreements. How much can you tell us about mm. this process? I suppose when you're on the show, when the show's being aired, they generally say to you, just keep everything in-house. And I respect that, and I really respected that process. Once you're sort of finished and the show's aired, you do get contacted by the, the media personnel to say, listen, it's okay for you to go back on social media and it's okay to do those things. And they do that because they don't want this product that they've put millions and millions of dollars into to air to be ruined, the experience for the viewer, by someone you know giving away secrets of the show or spoilers. So there's always an element of the show that's written down in a contract that they'd prefer you not to sort of discuss. But what was quite interesting is from my experience, I actually couldn't believe that being a fan of Survivor, how much of it was actually just real though. Because, you know, being a reality fan of that Survivor show, I just thought, oh, you know, maybe it's not all as clear-cut as it is, but competing in it, I couldn't believe it. So the confidentiality agreement I found a little bit silly because really most of it actually happened. There's not really much to hide. So we've got Lizzie here. Uh, Lizzie has the next question for you today. Uh, what do you want to hear from Mr Jones, Lizzie? Um, I would like to know what kind of stereotypes we see in reality TV and it may be easier for you to break it into the genders, male and female. Yep, absolutely. That's a great question. And I might just focus on particular Australia, if we're looking at Australian Survivor, because Americans, uh, Europeans, they will represent, you know, maybe different shades of stereotypes, in particular with Australia, from what I've seen from watching cooking shows, you know, renovation shows, but in particular Australian Survivor, they like to have for males that strong alpha male character. 
one that gets the female viewers or male viewers, depending on what their preference is, tuning in to watch them, to see them with their shirt off, their great muscles. And they also want to explore that alpha character not being that smart. They want to look at the difference between someone that might not be book smart, but is actually quite brawny and how they go. They then like to have maybe a narrator, someone that can speak quite well, so that when they have confessionals, they can tell the story for them. Because remember, when you're being interviewed for a confessional on a reality show, the producer would be asking you a question. They don't tell you what to say, but they're framing a question to hopefully they can edit later to tell a story in a way, because we need narrators. And then there's also the funny characters. There's also probably the older veteran characters. And that goes for both sexes. So for male and female, there generally is that old, wiser character, true blue Aussie. And then you'll see the funny characters. You'll then see, as Mr. Lamb alluded to, probably the bitchy characters. You know, those teen, mean girl type mentalities that they try to create. And then you'll probably also see some characters that are just a bit of a drifter. Someone that hasn't found themselves yet in life. Because that means that the person at home on the couch can say, that's me. I relate with that person because I haven't figured out who I am. Now we've got Joy here, one of the Year 11s. Uh, um, could you give us an example of one of these stereotypes in Season 3? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're looking at, probably give you a few, but if I look at, geez, uh, quite a polarising one was uh, Lee Castledine. So Lee Castledine was a former uh, Australian cricketer and got a very successful uh, business called Drone It, where he actually has uh, drone cameras. And he was put on basically as that, that alpha male. And he was framed not only as the alpha male, but the dad. You know, the, the Aussie dad, the single dad with two boys that was loyalty, that was mateship. And every time they put advertisements up for Lee or how they conversed with him on the show or represented him was that he was all about loyalty and mateship. Now, my experience with him on the show and outside of the show is, yes, that matters to him because through his sporting career, that was important. But he wasn't someone that was always on his high horse saying, this isn't a loyal thing to do or mateship's got to come first. So it's interesting that in particular, that stereotype, that was one that was probably played up a little bit, but it was a very, very obvious one. Okay, we've got Elise here. Um, and her question is... How do you think you were represented on the show? Terribly. No, um, <laughs> no. I think that I actually got quite a, a favourable edit considered to what they could have done with what I said or things that I did. So I think they actually looked after me and I don't know whether that's because from my interactions they said that they really liked me and what I offered to the show. So I think there might have been an element that they might have been kind with that, but it always comes back to the story they're trying to tell. So I feel like I was represented at the start as someone that was playing the game too quickly, that was strategizing too quickly. If I reflect on my time, I felt frustrated by that because I had a group of people that didn't want to actually do anything. They just were just like, oh no, we'll just wait till it happens. And that's from my experience, not how survivors played or how the winner wins. So I was probably a little bit annoyed out there with my own frustration and that was probably shown in the show at the start. I was trying to make things happen. I think I was represented as someone that was a humorous character, someone that they went to every now and then to tell the story of what's actually going on. And then they probably tried to look at the end as me as being a bit deceitful or villainous in a way, uh, which I, I'm fine with that. I'll take that every day of the week. Yeah, I mean, on the show... Uh 
there's a particular line they used about mm. your wife. Yeah. What what was that line that you said? Um, well, I said it a few times. I can't believe they only showed it once. So <laughs> I used a few things that I swore on. But one of the main things I swore on is that I was out there with people that kept yapping on about loyalty. They kept talking about, you know, how they were people that were committed to family, friends, relationships, and it meant a lot. And so I just thought, if I'm going to swear on anything, I've mentioned that I've got a wife. Not many people on there had it. Yeah, there wasn't many. I think Des and I were the only ones that were married. So I just thought I would say, I swear on my wife's life. I would look them in the eye and I would say, and I'd shake their hand and go, I'm not lying to you. I'm not trying to do this. I swear on my wife's life. And that is the highest thing I place in in my life. So you have my complete and utter uh, trust and faith in you. And I'm not asking you to commit to me, but I'm just letting you know right now that's how serious I am. And that got different responses. It did. Mm. What were some of those responses? We're going off uh, a bit of a tangent that's okay. here, but um, what was the sort it's of interesting. When, when, when I got back, my, my family and my friends who know me just thought that was funny. Because I think they, it's hilarious. They, yeah. Um, like, what does swearing on someone's life mean? I, like, is my wife going to get hit by a bus because I say, I swear on your life? No. If it happens, it's bad luck. So <laughs> I, I just thought that was a bit, it was interesting how people were so moral about it. Like, yeah. oh, how could he do that? How could that, how could he say something like that? Because I know you and I know Katie mm. and... It's just something that you would say. It's kind of amusing. It's funny. But in I think the it's show, funny. it was sort of framed as very manipulative or mm. very sort of, uh, I guess, mm. backstabby. Well, it's the um, Australian context, isn't it? Oh, you don't go against your wife, mate. Don't go against her. Don't speak her name in vain. You know, that type of mentality so that most people at home could go, oh, that that's awful. Maybe too, maybe because a lot of people weren't playing a villainous game or they weren't trying stuff. They're like, oh, this is gold. We have to show this because no one's really doing this. Um, and yeah, so I remember doing a studio interview with Studio 10 and after I'd finished having my conversation about it, what happened was someone, I saw the reaction on the television of someone actually sort of just going, oh, he's awful, this guy. Like, how could you say that? I had to discuss with my children what he did. That's really interesting, the response. Wow. Um, we've got Kieran here, um, who's going to take our discussion in a slightly different direction. Were the contestants different in real life compared to how they were portrayed on the program uh yes and no okay yes and no so yeah i could unpack that a little bit you know some people were represented that they were quite mean people i might use al as an example al got a very very minimal edit for someone that finished third and someone that played the game so socially brilliant she was incredible socially she was amazing if she got to the end it didn't matter who she was sitting next to she would have won and Maybe because Al is a little bit brash and out there and maybe her language is a bit colourful sometimes that they didn't show a lot of her conversations. And they represented her as a mean girl, as someone that was quite nasty and, and referencing that terrific Tina Fey film, Mean Girls. And that didn't sit well with me when I saw that. I thought, no, that's not her as a person. So sometimes there's ones that are different. Some are accurate. I think it's interesting. One of the reasons I got you in to speak to my year 11s and talk about this idea of reality TV and representation is on Instagram, I get the Survivor contestants popping up in my Explore mm -hmm. feed all the time because you're obviously friends with them and I'm yep. friends with you. And I found it interesting how they would represent themselves on social media versus how they were represented in the show. Mm -hmm. So there are characters who, I guess... Uh, represent themselves as quite fun loving and in the show they were represented as mm. as you said mean girls you yep. know sort of manipulative mm. um type characters so 
uh, to me, that highlighted the difference between, you know, here you you're, these people are creating representations of themselves on social media versus how they were portrayed or represented in the show, which I thought was different. Mm. Uh, you know, really interesting and shows how this process of representation works. And I think just expanding on that, there's three layers there. There's the person as a true, real person, how they would be when they're sitting on the couch with their partner, their family or their friends. And that's their, probably their true representation. You've got the representation on social media where you're trying to portray who you really are, even though it might not be who you really are. And then you've got the representation on top of that of a TV show that is trying to get ratings so that they make money. It's incredible. It's many, many, many different layers. Now, we've got Nick here um, for our final question, but we are going to throw open to yep. some other questions that people might have about this. Uh, Nick? How do you think Australian Survivor and American Survivor are different? Great question. Uh, there's a new Survivor season 34 in America, Game Changers. They've brought back all these people that have made big moves in the past. And I've been watching that at the moment. I actually blog about it as well. So it's something that I blog about and I try to make fun of and I, and I try to look at it analytically as well. And what I've noticed, and it was probably the downfall of a lot of major Survivor fans that got picked to play an Australian Survivor, was that we've been studying American Survivor. Now, American Survivor is cutthroat. It is brutal. Like if you are a threat or if people see that you might be able to win, that person's targeted quite early. But on the other side too, sometimes that's respected as well. So those types try to work together. The game is very, very quick. Moves are happening constantly. Whereas Australian Survivor was probably more reflective of our culture. We're a little bit lazy. We sometimes wait for things to come to us before we act on things. And I think that's what we saw with Australian Survivor, this current season that's just finished, was that the big movers and shakers, a lot of them, and the big personalities went very, very early because those that don't want to make moves find that threatening. Whereas in the American version, they'd go straight for it. And maybe the American version probably has a little bit more diversity with their casting as well. Asians, Hispanics, um, obviously African-Americans, and then Anglo-Saxon-Americans as well. In class, we drew this amazing diagram on the board, right, which shows all of the things that represent, uh, sort of influence representation. And one of those things was culture. So I find it interesting what you said about American culture, and I'm going to make some brash generalizations about American and Australian culture here, but I think American culture is a culture that uh, sort of praises and values, I guess, entrepreneurship and, you know, uh, making something of yourself and all of those sorts of things and pursuing a goal, and we're a little bit more laid back. And I think that is reflected in the show, as you said, through those sort of representations. Mm. Now, I know these guys have got heaps of questions for you. Uh, I know Chris has, because Chris is over here. He's been jotting stuff down as we've been talking. Chris, what are you intrigued to find out? So being a media, media teacher, having experience in filming, how different was the overall process of the filming compared to how you thought it would be? What were mm. the major differences? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. I, I think the major differences, the first one I noticed was how many crew were involved. And one thing people asked about Australian Survivor, they're like, why is it going for 55 days? when the American version is so slick production value-wise and they do it in 39. And one of the main reasons was, is to do something of that scale, Australian sort of reality shows have never done that before and they actually needed a bit more time. So I was amazed by the amount of people that were working on it, the fact that they had camera crews around them and also the precision, the precision they took with setting up confessionals. So when you spoke to the camera, 
the most of the lighting was natural lighting, but they would still have their lighting kits to get the things right. Um, the precision they took with their sound and the fact that they just, when you watched it back, all of these shots that you didn't realise they got, like those really big broad cinematic shots that they would get of the Samoan uh, lifestyle was uh, striking to me. So the, the amount of effort and care surprised me, uh, which I suppose looking back, it's no surprise now when you look at how it ended up, but the amount of effort that they put into it and the planning that must have gone on was phenomenal. And we've got Nick here who's also got another question for you. Um, there might be some spoilers, but Christy was portrayed as like really, you know, like afraid and like scared, but like at the final tribal council, mm. she was like, you know, savage and like <laughs> she was like a different person. Mm. So what was that? I, I think from my experience from talking to people that were, you know, uh, my my friends and people that were on the show and we're all this big connected family now whether we like it or not we're all lumped together and, and there's a lot of love for each other I think with Christy especially my experience at the start she did really struggle and she's been someone that's open about someone that struggled with anxiety in the past and it's a very strange environment to put yourself into especially at, at night time it gets it gets dark around 8 p.m it's pitch black you can't see where anything is and that can throw you out of that comfort zone and she did struggle very very early and then throughout the game, I think she was a she was a hard person to read. There are people sometimes that you meet in life that socially might not be as strong and outgoing as other people. And in a game like that, when she didn't seem like a big threat or making any moves, people were just like, oh, that's okay, we'll get rid of her later. And then when she got to the end, she's a fan as well, and she knows how those tribal councils work. And she probably thought, well, few people don't like Lee, so I've got to sort of talk up. And the funny thing was, most of the people on the jury that were deciding whether she would get half a million dollars were people that didn't really have too much to do with her or see her earlier past to see that maybe she didn't do that much early on. So when she gets up there and goes, oh, no, I did all of these things, there weren't that many people that could say, oh, hang on, you're not telling the truth. And because Lee is a very loyal person, he didn't want to take that moment away from her either to shoot her down, which he should have because you've got to play to win. And so we've got another question here um, from Joy. Um, so we'll just throw across to her. Um, another spoilers. At the end of episode three, it was shown that you left some of your stuff back in the tribe. Do you really think that you were safe from the chopping board? That's a great question. So it's, uh, yeah, you got to put yourself back in that, that mindset. I knew that leading into that tribal council that I was not at the top of any alliance. I knew that I'd made a big move earlier that probably upset some people. There's always, you've got to have, when you're playing Survivor in the back of your mind, a ruthlessness of, well, you've got to believe in something. So you've got to believe in some person. So when you go into it, and I had a very close relationship with Lee, and I said, who are you voting for? And he said, Cat, and he was telling the truth. And that was true to me. I took a read of people and I judged that what he was telling me was accurate. There was still always that sinking feeling in my gut that I could go home. But in the back of my mind too, I don't want to take all my stuff. If I take all my stuff, what am I going to do with it? There's also other people out there that there's still the human compassion side of me that they might need actually some things, which happened to my Kmart hoodie, my grey hoodie. It went through the entire show. It got to the end. It actually got to the final three, that, and they had a ceremony, they burnt <laughs> so, it. So oh, my hoodie it. was there. Basically one. There's like, we went through this stage where the cast were all just taking snapshots of every different person that wore it. So 
I think, Joy, it was more you've got to tell yourself that you're not going home so you don't give up. I hate it when people give up. But also to the element of, well, I don't really need, why do I need my clothes? There's people out there that need it more than me. So you're obviously friends with some of the cast members and you're with them on social media. How often are you in communication with them? And if you do communicate, do you ever reflect on the show and your experiences together? Yeah, it's an incredible thing because for all of us, honestly, and we've had a chat about this, it comes into your mind every single day. It pops up, you're driving your car, you're washing the dishes, you think about it. It's not something that weighs you down. Everyone's got different ways that they react to it, but it's a part of our lives. So I think a lot of the things that, geez, on social media, I see their faces every day or I'm communicating with them every day in some small way. Obviously, with any friendships, I'd say there is all a mutual respect between all of us. I would say that the, I'd say nearly everyone's friends in some way. Yeah, friends in some way. But there's obviously closer relationships that you have. And for those that I'm closer with, I'm yeah, contacting them each day. Sometimes when I'm driving to work, I'll re, I'll um, I'm, I might have recorded myself doing something stupid, and I'll send that to Lee or I'll send that to Al. Um, Phoebe and I blog together with Craig, so we've got that connection. Des will ring me every now and then, late at night, just to have a chat. Uh, and then there's you know people like Nick that I keep in touch with too. So I was surprised by that. I went in not wanting to make friends. I just thought I'll just go in there and do what's right for my family and my life. So I'll do anything. I don't care if people don't like me after this. But you're human and you share such a surreal thing. So when you get out of it, you do form those bonds. And that's what's really nice about it. I've, I've made lifelong friends now that I didn't expect that I would. I suppose I've got three questions. So if anyone else thinks of anything, uh, you know, come down and we'll we'll ask those as well. But I guess my first question is about when you were on the show. I, I guess how physically demanding was it? What mm. what was the actual experience like of trying to build shelter and trying to make yeah. fire? Was yeah. that difficult for for me? I don't know because my metabolism's quite good. Like I can eat a stack of junk food and I just don't put on weight. Um, I can lose weight very quickly though and generally in survivor terms the first 14 days people lose the most amount of weight and then your body acclimatizes to it your stomach shrinks down a bit you get used to it so I lost I was out there for 10 days competing and in those 10 days I lost uh, seven kilos in that 10 days it's because our tribe sucked with making a fire so we couldn't really eat anything except for bananas that we'd find or maybe some pawpaw and there's not a lot in pawpaw um but yeah and your body sort of gets a little bit um drawn out and dehydrated because you don't have access to as much clean water as you would like so i funnily enough that's why one thing that gutted me when i left was that physically i felt great even though i could see that i was dwindling away i still felt great and mentally i felt really really good i think the biggest stretch for people out there is mentally because you can't trust anyone So, for instance, when I was out there, I looked at someone like Lee and I thought, I could probably trust this guy with my life in the real world. And I do, but I still had in the back of my mind, I can't fully trust this guy. He doesn't have to tell me the truth. He could just be pretending that he's a really nice, loyal guy. Um, So, I think the the mind is probably more, I think, than the physicality. But I loved it. I like being outdoors. I like camping. So, I just thought, what an experience. We get to create a shelter from scratch wasn't great to sleep on, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to I'd be, do it again in a heartbeat. And I guess my next question uh, is about 
what happened after. So obviously mm. there's the show and then there's this media circus that exists um, after yeah. the show and all of the stuff on social media. So yeah. what was that experience like? Well, for me, I really honoured the process and I didn't go on social media. So when it was leading up to the show and even when the show was airing, I, I wasn't on social media. And I, I made that decision for two reasons. I did it for my own mental health because I thought I know what being a school teacher, cyberbullying can be like. I, I've used social media before and I can see how awful people can be. That didn't stop me checking it though because other people would send stuff to me. They go, oh, look at this. And I found it quite funny like because I can see the humour in things, but it was quite striking at how personal people can be and make opinions on people without even knowing them. I, I, I was staggered by that. So I guess probably a little bit deeper what were some of the things that were said what what amused you about that reaction um what was interesting is when i was out there i made a comment about because every time i've watched american survivor people are very very analytical about what people's professions do and what that means so for me if i went out there and i knew someone was a drama teacher that doesn't mean they're a fantastic actor they might be a better teacher at that than they are at acting but i would analyze that and go it's like a police officer. If a police officer out there, I go, they're very analytical, they're fit, they can deal with conflict well, so I would make a judgment on them. So I basically said I didn't really want them knowing that I was a drama teacher, and that was like a real throwaway line. It was a bit of a homage to someone that played the game before that made up a profession change, and for some reason that got traction. So people, <laughs> I, th I found it funny, people were calling me Mr. G from Summer Heights High, and I love Chris Lilly, and I think he's a amazing, so I love that. Um, people were commenting about my looks, uh, my appearance, in particular my face. Um, other people were talking about just how it was annoying, like incredibly annoying, like I was such an annoying person and they couldn't stand me. And then obviously the negative stuff gets relayed a lot more, uh, whereas the nicer stuff that you hear and people you meet in public, they're great, you know, because generally people that type online don't have the confidence to say that to your face. So, uh, and to be honest, after the first maybe one or two episodes, I didn't think it would affect me, but I sort of thought, oh, geez, maybe the, the show wasn't representing how hard I worked. So because I didn't fit the stereotype of an alpha male, they were like, we can't show this guy cutting down all the trees. We can't show the guy making the shelter. We can't show these things that he's doing. I would give people my shirt. I would give people my food because I thought that's going to make them like me and say, we've got to keep this guy around. They didn't show me trying to make the fire. And that's because I didn't fit that stereotype. They didn't need me to be the tough, strong provider. They had other people for that. So, yeah, it's interesting the things uh, people can say and how it affects you. It didn't really affect me that much, though, because I don't take stock in people's opinions that I don't value. That is a beautiful segue because it brings it back to what we're studying class children's. Okay, <laughs> We're talking about this idea of representation. So everything that we see in the media has been created through this process of selection, omission, and construction. So when you make something, you choose what you're going to put in there. You choose what you're going to leave out. And I guess you portray your subject in a particular way. So my question is, uh, you've talked a little bit about what was left out. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't see you helping those people. We didn't yeah. see you making those offerings of food. What about the things that they did select? Were there Because I know you were interviewed a lot when you mm. were on the island. Mm. What were the, were there, Was there anything that bothered you or struck you as interesting about the the little clips and the snippets that they did put in. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose there's a relationship, isn't it, between the inclusions and the omissions there. I think probably one thing that they included that I thought was interesting was that there was a conversation I was having with 
Phoebe at a campsite, and we were lighting the fire, and it was just an inane conversation that we would do. And I had some, my wife painted some nail polish on my big toe before I went. And that was just going to be for something for me. If I was ever getting a little bit delirious, I was going to look at that and go, well, there's a point for why I'm doing all of this. And Phoebe said to me, and we got along like a house on fire. She goes, what's that? And I sarcastically, because that's what I'm like, I said, well, it's nail polish. I go, people put paint on their nails to decorate it. And it's become a very popular thing. And she deadpanned the response like, oh, he's so witty. And then they cut it. After that, we're laughing because that, that was our humour. And I thought that was an interesting thing because it was an inane conversation to include. Didn't think it would be in there. And then I, I suppose on the other side, my whole strategy was going in was be the funny guy because no one, no one rates the funny guy. No one thinks the funny guy is a challenge. So every time I spoke to Jonathan LaPaglia, the host, I was cracking jokes. So anytime you, if you listen to a podcast of other contestants, I'll go, everyone's one of the funniest guys we've met. I don't necessarily believe that, but they all believe that. And that's what I wanted, so I wasn't seen as a threat. That wasn't included. Why wasn't it included? Because they wanted to represent the first new host of Australian Survivor, Jonathan LaPaglia, to be that strong Aussie, you know, authority. No one can make him look silly because he is the ringmaster. He controls it all. And I understand that. But for me, socially, that still helped me because people thought, ah, oh, it's just a funny guy. Yeah, neat. Uh, we've got we've got Chris who's back again. <laughs> um, so you know your own physical capabilities and you've seen American Survivor a lot. So you would have had, you would have had a good idea of the physically demanding tasks that they would have made you do. Um, how far were you expecting to get into the competition knowing all these things? Yeah, I wanted to be like Tom Hanks in Castaway. I wanted the beard. My beard's an awful beard. It's, it's like it's a very wispy average beard, which I think Mr. Lamb and I laughed about in our audition video. Yeah. But um, I wanted to see how far my body could go. If I had to be medically evacuated, I would have been happy as long as I was healthy. Uh, I wanted to see how far I could push my body knowing sort of my endurance and knowing that I can live on not much food, I just thought, yeah, bring this on. I can get to the end. Absolutely. Because there's also times where there's a bit of rewards where you can eat stuff. People are always going to look at me and go, hey, mate, you're a bit thin. You need to eat this. And I think as long as you keep yourself hydrated, that's the that's the number one thing that you can do well. And yeah, so I was I saw myself body-wise uh, going the whole way. Yeah, speaking of Evan's beard, my favourite part of the audition video, which I'll show you sometime... Um, is this moment where he's talking, he's up in a tree, he's talking to me and he's like, yeah, my beard, when it grows, it's got this Johnny Depp sparseness to it. And then you see this pause and he thinks, oh yeah, that's really good. <laughs> it's just this nice moment. I love it. Another question that I have is this format of television is called reality television. Obviously we see characters, um, re represented as particular stereotypes in this show. Do you think that's a the way a lot of the audience sees this program do they see the stereotypes or do they just you know see say that person ah oh, he's he's the annoying one that person ah oh, she's the bitchy one how do you think people read this i think you've brought up something that's very very interesting there because i can honestly say when i watch american survivor all of my analytical stuff that i generally think about shows goes out the window because i've got an enjoyment I can then look back at an episode afterwards and go, oh, that person was going home because they played music then or they're framing this person as a villain because they showed a snake in the wilderness after they showed their face. Um, but I think most people don't really think about stereotypes or breaking down it too much. Yes, they will have a comment like that's a bitchy person or that person's the nasty one or the villainous person. 
but I don't think we really, as audience watchers, really think about that sometimes when we're going through. We just get we get connected with the conflict and our own emotions and how we can relate with someone that we know that is like that and we associate that person we're seeing with that person and that's why it makes it quite real for the viewer. Thank you. Do we have any other questions from you guys about the whole process or how things are represented? Mohammed's got a question, so um, I might just move the mic a little bit. If you could be on the show again, would you pick to be on the American one or the Australian one? Oh, wow. Um, that's a very good question. I would love to play on an American one because I'd imagine if that happened, I would be with American contestants and then you'd be a bit in awe and you'd want to learn stuff from them. But there's unfinished business with Australian Survivor and me and, and I think maybe the casting might change a little bit from now on with what they get and they see what works. It's their first try at it and they might get different sort of stereotypes. But yeah, there's something... I, I still think there's a predictability about Australians that seems ironic because I wasn't able to predict certain things, but I, I still think there's just unfinished business with Australian Survivor. There's unfinished business. So let's hope in maybe five years when they're desperate and they're getting returning players back, they might go, we'll get that sort of semi-annoying guy. We'll get him back. <laughs> um, and on that note, uh, thank you so much for listening to this uh, episode of Media. Uh, you can check out this podcast at uh, lessonbucket.com. Um, thank you so much for coming along, Evan, and talking to us. Yeah, so Brett, thanks for having me in. I really appreciate it and the opportunity to talk to the year of class and your great questions. And I think the most important thing about this is that you're doing critical thinking. So you're thinking further and you're actually getting opinions. That's probably one of the most important things about media is not just believing what you see, being informed and going a little bit further about that so that you're knowledgeable so that you can start making decisions. Because think about the power that the media has. They can potentially ruin a person's life with what they present. They've got such a power. So it's really important that you're informed and as media practitioners, you don't jump to conclusions. Figure it out first and then make an informed decision, which I think is great that you're doing in your classes. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, We will catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Uh, Goodbye. Goodbye.